been thinking about COVID-19 this week, I've realized that even though I'm still managing the personal and organizational ramifications of pandemic with masks and distancing and so forth, I had grown somewhat disconnected from the reality of the actual disease. Partly that's due to the nature of the slowly accumulating roster of deaths, as well as the hugely distracting elements of the current cultural moment. As we've noted before, we're in the midst of multiple crises, not just pandemic, all within a momentous political season holding the potential to set the course and content of our democracy for a generation or more. Will it survive in its current form is an actual question that floats through the ether. And all the while, the disease proceeds irrespective of all other matters, now accounting for nearly 200,000 deaths in the United States. Statistics are interesting. For a big chunk of the American population, that number doesn't seem to mean much. Granted, our president flaunts this indifference, as we saw on the White House lawn recently, jam-packed with shoulder-to-shoulder non-mask-wearing attendees for his party's acceptance as presidential candidate. Uh, but here I go, getting sidetracked to my main consideration. Approximately 200,000 deaths and counting with flu season just around the corner. If we were gathered in person, I'd ask for a show of hands of attendees who think we'll likely experience a COVID resurgence this fall. We recoil at this possibility with an instinct to ignore it or set it aside given its scale. But the majority of health professionals tell us we should prepare. Back to statistics for a minute. 200,000 COVID deaths thus far. By comparison, approximately 3,000 died on 9-11. 58,000 Americans died in the Vietnam War. I've been wondering about the meaning we assign COVID deaths. And I've been wondering about all the families and encircling communities who have been impacted by this catastrophic loss. Millions of people have been directly impacted. I've been especially focused on holding my heart open with this in mind. During the morning prayer I host each day, there's often a petition that says, Loving God, we hold in your healing presence those facing bereavement. We also pray for those who have died May they know the deep peace of Christ. That seems an important mantra in these days. For sincere Christians, well, and even sincere atheists for that matter, human suffering is the great conundrum for positing a belief in a loving God. Nicole Armstrong led an in-depth consideration of this problem with her recent study of the book of Job. Why do bad things happen to good people after all? I'm thinking it would be useful to reconsider this matter for just a few minutes as we anticipate these next months that are so fraught with loss and confusion. We'll wind up with Paul's admonition you heard Liza read for us a couple of minutes ago that all roads 
lead to love. But let's begin with the question I was asked by a young woman following the catastrophic tsunami that wiped out a quarter of a million Indonesians the day after Christmas in 2005. She wrote to me saying, I was asked by a co-worker why God would allow a natural disaster such as a tsunami to kill a multitude of innocent people. A few thoughts sputtered through my mind, including natural population cleansing, a wake-up call, etc., but I was unable to provide a solid answer. My generation has experienced a couple of wake-up calls in the past few years, but unlike 9-11, which I summed up as the evil of humanity, I cannot find a valid explanation for this disaster. How do I explain God's will in this tragedy to a borderline atheist? Her question remains among the toughest unanswerable questions for any person of faith, although there are some things to say around the edges. First, it's very important to say what a disaster like the tsunami, or in our case, the pandemic, is not. It is not God's special punishment visited upon anyone particularly. No one has been especially fingered by God. That's always been an easy out for fundamentalists of every stripe. That's how the AIDS pandemic was explained by some. Jesus made clear that suffering is part of the fabric of existence and at, at one point referenced to certain physical disaster, the collapsing of the Tower of Siloam, and asked, were the victims of this collapse greater sinners than others? He flatly answered in the negative. Of course, that does not answer why persons must suffer in the main. But we can make some other general comments. For instance, we can say that all of us are going to die. What we seem to so resent is a premature end. And although who's to say just what period of time is too short or perhaps in some cases too long, I'm mindful that when we pray for someone to be healed, and they are healed. What we've really done is postpone the inevitable. That doesn't make the healing any less desirable, but it does place the healing in an appropriate context. This area of focus in theology is called theodicy, one of the oldest concerns of theological inquiry. The book of Job is a very early and profound example. For Christian theologians, they ask the question, how does suffering square with a loving God? We never can finally answer it. We poke at it, we posit tentative explanations, but at best are always only partial. But that doesn't mean God is not loving. Although we see now that any sentimental definition of love won't do. God stands above, behind, beneath all things. When disaster or plague strikes, we are thrust into our most dependent position, a position we hate because it pushes us to the outermost limits of our knowledge and understanding. Faith calls us to trust even still. In fact, faith is defined by the limits of our knowledge. Faith reaches beyond those limits. Faith also calls us to be realists. To acknowledge that a pandemic has not created a new set of conundrums, 
but reiterates the basic situation of our being born and having to die. It shakes the sentimental and comfortably secure Christian into facing the truth about the real stakes. It jolts awake our understanding of the sacred and holy nature of life and of time. C.S. Lewis thought that in some circumstance, pain served as God's megaphone. I have personal understanding of what he means. Sometimes I've seen persons come to faith in the midst of great suffering. It becomes itself the awakening agent. Of course, for others, it pushes them away since they seem to know that had they been in charge, they would have built the thing differently. Christianity is founded on the life and times of a man who died by crucifixion for the sake of love. When we're at our best, we do not flinch from the reality of suffering. And though we may not fully understand it, we believe that God can redeem it. That's the meaning found in resurrection faith. I believe God does not punish people with suffering, even though the created order clearly allows for it. I can't prove that, of course. It's through faith in the God of resurrection that I intuit this deep truth. And friends, when speaking about these matters, it's important to remember that saying less is probably more. I will often say to someone when they ask a really tough question, you know, I really don't know the answer, but this is what I do know, and then go from there. For instance, I know a God who is as near to me as my next breath, and yet also has flung the stars into distant space. I know a profound trust in this same God. I know of an abiding and incredibly intimate presence to me and to those that I love so that I am able to pray as we do in our funeral liturgy. Help us to live as those who are prepared to die. And when our days here are accomplished, enable us to die as those who go forth to live so that living or dying, our life may be in you, and that nothing in life or in death will be able to separate us from your great love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Love is the all-encompassing energy, even larger than suffering and death. Faith does not predict having an easy way. It never has. Any minister you've ever heard who has implied this has misled you and diminished Christianity's content. Faith is not a magic potion revealing an angry God who can be appeased by flattery or fear-based obedience. Easy is not a compatible or appropriate modifier for faith. But importantly, very importantly, profound faith does predict having a certain confidence about life, a certain courage in the face of death and suffering, and a certain willingness to respond to life and generous love. Profound faith gifts us with hope so that each day can be received joyfully with gratitude, awe, and wonder. That's why even in the midst of tragedy, we still feel groans of thanksgiving buried deep within. 
This is the engine of an indefatigable human spirit that lives each day expectantly, passionately, loving God above all things and one's neighbor as oneself. You know, a wondrous array of different persons and personalities holding wildly divergent life experiences are tuning into this worship as a pandemic tsunami continues to flow across our land, leaving catastrophic suffering while disrupting the lives of millions of people. A dispassionate theological conversation doesn't exactly meet the need. What does begin to meet the need are acts of sacrificial love. And tellingly, that's exactly what the witness of our scripture reveals. Even as we heard it read today, Paul was the most explicit when he wrote that the whole law is summed up in loving our neighbor as ourselves. And today's gospel also points to the essential obligation we have for each other while remembering that the spirit of Jesus remains present and powerful no matter what. The heart of Christian faith is found in the supreme example of his sacrificial love. That is our model and our hope. We call this redemptive love, born from his sharing our human predicament and catalyzing resurrection energy. These things are inseparably linked. And so we learn the real meaning of our faith is found in how we treat one another, how well we extend ourselves and share our resources and pursue the upbuilding of the common good. This good work expands into shared community concerns and public policy that advances the general welfare of people from every walk and sector of life. This love transcends all other matters, challenging our tribalist tendencies as we internalize the truth that we are all sisters and brothers responsible for one another. We are not simply islands of self-concern to hell with everyone else. God calls us to buck this radical individualist nativist tendency born of fear. We are meant to become great lovers as we learn there is no higher, deeper calling. Friends, that, that is a very beautiful and ennobling thing to discover.